Last time we spoke about the Battle of the Commodorsky Islands. Admiral Kincaid and McMorris began a naval blockade of Attu and Kiska, putting the IGN in a terrible bind. They could either give up the Aleutians or they would have to reinforce them, either of which came at a huge cost. Admiral Hosegaya had no choice but to try and breach the Allied blockade to get the much needed reinforcements to the frozen islands. Hosegawa's fleet was superior in numbers and firepower to that of McMorris when they fatefully met in the frigid northern seas. Yet by a stroke of luck, a single man fired a high explosive shell during the heat of battle causing Hosegawa to make a terrible blunder. Under the impression Allied air power was about to attack them all, Hosegawa backed off, losing the chance to claim a major victory. And today we are going to venture behind the desk, so to speak. This episode is the Pacific Military Conference, MacArthur vs. King. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm just now finishing up my multi-part series on China's warlord era. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And this month's exclusive podcast episode is on General Kanji Ishiwada, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Now before we jump into the real war of the Pacific, General Douglas MacArthur versus Admiral Ernest King, I first want to jump back over to the good old CBI theater. Interesting uh, little side thing to mention, I recently did a live stream. I was gaming with a friend, you know, answering some audience questions and such, and a dear old audience member, probably someone who listens to this podcast, he asked me a question. The guy asked me, how important was the CBI theater? And it really got me thinking on the spot. Honestly, when Americans talk about the Pacific War... And let's be honest, it's usually Americans who do talk about it. It's not a war that's too popular in Europe. Well, two things come to mind. Naval battles and island-hopping warfare. China gets overshadowed despite literally being the lion's share of fighting against the Japanese. I mean, hell, they keep like 30-plus divisions in China out of 50 or so for the entire war. But even more than that, you hardly ever hear about Burma or India. They're always the quote-unquote benchwarmers compared to, let's say, your Guadalcanals or your Iwo Jimas. As I said to the audience member on the live stream, it's hard to quantify something like this, but honestly, tossing percentages around, you could argue the CBI theater was a hard, maybe 50 to 60% of the war effort. Because it did the most important thing necessary to win a war. It drained Japan of men and resources. I find it's an aspect that's quite lost in a lot of people. Japan? 
simply because they were stuck in China, had pretty much wasted about, well, I, I guess, 50% of their manpower just dealing with the China issue. Furthermore, you could argue the USSR occupied Japan as well during most of the war because Japan had quite a few divisions up in northern Manchuria in case, you know, the Soviets just invaded. Anyways, it was a fun live stream. I hope to do it again soon and I hope more of you come and ask uh, questions and just hang out. Now, the last time we were talking about the disastrous first Arakan campaign, the British had launched their offensive and they saw heavy resistance at Rothudang and Donbak. General Irwin continuously made blunders. When Wavell made an inspection of the battlefields later on, he commented how Irwin's force had, quote, fought in penny packets. Basically what he was getting at with this little jab was, unlike conventional battles, take for example the famous battle of Alamein, Irwin's offensive consisted of hundreds of chance encounters, dozens of desperate set-piece clashes, hand-to-hand conflicts, frontal attacks, ambushes, desperate defenses, bombing raids, all of which had been minutely chronicled. But the details of them were quite a mystery to everybody. General Slim, when asked, described it all as this. It was an epic that ran across great stretches of wild country. One day its focal point was a hill, named on no map. Next, a miserable unpronounceable village a hundred miles away. Columns, brigades, divisions marched and countermarched, men in bloody clashes and reeled apart, weaving a confused pattern hard to unreal. Now, the beginning of the first Arakan offensive seemed to go well. Despite the logical nightmares, Lloyd enjoyed the advantages of both air superiority and numerical superiority. But the Japanese built their defenses knowing full well what was coming to hit them. The Japanese made no attempt to hold on to the lines between Mangdao and Muthedang, nor resist the British forces at Kyaktao. Lloyd began sending optimistic reports, such as on Christmas Day when the enemy pulled out of Rathadang. And so the British continued along the peninsula, until they came a few miles north of a point of Donbak, sitting on the coast of the Bay of Miguel. It was here General Koga had dug in and waited for his enemy. It was to be here, after showcasing the Japanese superior jungle fighting tactics, their roadblocks and amphibious hooks, that they would unleash a new unsuspecting weapon, that of the bunker. General Slim described it as such. For the first time, we had come up against the Japanese bunkers. From now on, to be so familiar to us. This was a small strong point made usually of heavy logs with four to five feet of earth, and so camouflaged in the jungle that it could not be picked out of even 50 yards without prolonged searching. These bunkers held garrisons, varying from five to 20 men, plentifully supplied with medium and light machine guns. The bunkers were impervious to field guns and medium bombs. They also had crossing fire lanes, thus for one force to attack a bunker, they would be fired upon by two more. The redoubted Dombak was situated alongside a chung, which was a natural anti-tank position, having steep sides up to 9 feet high beside the bunkers. On January the 7th of 1943, the forces got their first taste of these defenses and they were tossed back with heavy casualties. 
For days, a pattern emerged of men throwing themselves at the bunkers only to be butchered. It was so bad, both Wavell and Irwin were forced to come visit Lloyd on the 10th just to tell him, You must take Don back at all cost. And so Lloyd asked for tanks, and he was given them. But to General Slim's horror, the man only asked for one troop of them, prompting Slim to object, stating, The more you use, the fewer you lose. His argument was sound and simple. If you're going to utilize tanks, you try to do so en masse, to overwhelm the enemy. Otherwise, the resources would be vulnerable and most likely lost. His objections were tossed aside, and half a squadron of tanks, merely eight of them, hit the bunkers. The British attacks were beaten off all the same. Now, Koga knew he had to fight off the enemy until at least the end of March to receive some much-needed and decent reinforcements. Thus, he determined to hold out and to do so, he needed to perform a counterattack. Meanwhile, his counterpart, Irwin, was determined that overwhelming infantry numbers on narrow fronts could achieve victory. And as one contemporary analysis called it, an idea rich in casualties. General Koga brought up the bulk of his 55th Division to Akyab, and on March the 7th, the 213th Regiment attacked the Kaladan Valley, driving away the V-Force. Then the 112th Regiment attacked the 123rd and the 55th Indian Brigades north of Rathadang, who were forced to pull back all the way to Zidadang. This left the 47th Indian Brigade trapped at the Huitze Bridgehead, and the Japanese carried out wide outflanking maneuvers and infiltration attacks against the British lines. In response, Irwin tried to toss another assault against Dombak, which had just been further reinforced by Koga. On March the 18th, the 6th Brigade of Brigadier Ronald Cavendish launched a frontal attack on a very narrow front despite multiple advice given to him by other commanders stating he should try to outflank the Japanese along the mountain crest. His force made little progress and suffered heavy casualties for their efforts. Meanwhile, the 213th Regiment secured the eastern side of the Mayu River and the 112th Regiment was preparing to cross it. In early March, Irwin was doing something aside from tossing his men into a meat grinder. He began covering his ass. Sensing defeat was staring him right in the face, in his desperation he tried to co-opt his hated rival, General Slim, into sharing some of the blame with him. He sent Slim to Mongdao to see Lloyd and report on the situation there. When Slim asked him if this meant he was now in operational control, Irwin said absolutely not. He just wanted Slim's assessment of the situation over there. Irwin did, however, add in that Slim might gain operational control in the future, but only when Irwin said so. And even in that case, Irwin would be retaining administrative control. Well, Slim found that Lloyd's men's morale was at an all-time low. He advised Lloyd to abandon the idiotic frontal assaults and instead to try and flank the enemy through the jungles. But Lloyd argued that was too unfeasible. And alongside Irwin's orders, this all overruled Slim. Thus, Slim returned to Irwin with a useless report. Up until this point, Wavell pretty much had no idea what the hell was going on. He continued to urge action from Irwin. So Irwin ordered action from Lloyd. And the result was just more disasters. 
By March the 20th, Wavell, Irwin, and Lloyd all accepted they would have to withdraw the forces to the Mangdao Buthadang line. Wavell was livid at his subordinates, and he wrote this. It seemed to me to show a complete lack of imagination, and was neither one thing nor the other. An attack in real depth with determined soldiers like the 6th Brigade would, I am sure, have accomplished something, though it had cost us casualties. But to use one battalion at a time, and that usually only deploying one company, seems to me to be poor tactics. With the Japanese in a pocket like that, I cannot believe that a plan could have been made to eat them up. It looked to me like practically ideal for covering machine gun and motor fire from a flank. On the night of the 24th, the 112th Regiment crossed the Mayu River, marching along narrow paths, a jungle, to get to the crest of a supposedly impassable Mayu range. The following days saw lines of communications to Kyokipandu severed. The enemy captured the mountain crest near Atetnanra on the 29th, and in response to this, Lloyd sent the 47th and the 6th Brigades to retreat west before they were encircled. This, of course, was in contradiction to direct orders that he had received to wait until the monsoon season had broke out before pulling out. Irwin was forced to countermand Lloyd's order. Wavell was livid over this insubordination. The man was blundering things, as he sought, and he sought to toss Lloyd under the bus. Thus, Irwin was discreetly told to sack Lloyd, and before doing so, he took direct command of the 14th Indian Division. Lloyd was replaced by Major General C.E.N. Lomax, who was promptly ordered to carry on doing the exact same types of things that Lloyd had been doing. The 26th Indian Division and Lomax were sent to bolster the peninsula. Lomax was going to assume command of all the Arakan forces when he got there. But until then, Irwin had to run the entire show. Koga was not going to let up, of course, and the 112th Regiment managed to build a roadblock north of Indan Village by April the 3rd, successfully cutting the lines of communication off for the 47th and 6th Brigades. Simultaneously, the 143rd Regiment burst into the area, advancing northwards up the Mayu River Valley. The Japanese were soon infiltrating British positions at Indian Village and overran the HQ of the 6th Brigade, capturing its commander, Cavendish, in the process. However, one of Cavendish's last orders before being grabbed was for the British artillery to simply open fire on Indian Village, which they did, taking the Japanese completely by surprise. It caused significant casualties on the Japanese, but also killed the British, killing Cavendish in the end as well. With the 47th Brigade practically annihilated by Koga's forces, Irwin began to launch himself into a frenzy of blame-shifting. He argued the Brigade, not his own tactical ideas, were alone to blame, and yet again he tried to drag Slim into his mess. This time he told Slim to hold himself in readiness to take over operational control and to move his HQ to Chittagong. But again, Irwin reminded him he would not have administrative control nor operational direction until Irwin said so. Slim met with Irwin in Calcutta on April the 5th, having been recalled from leave in the small hours, something Irwin did to him quite often. That evening he dined with Lloyd at the Bengal Club and he heard his side of the story, which the man remarkably told him without any bitterness of his shabby treatment. After this, Slim had a meeting with Lomax at Chittagong. 
The 6th Brigade narrowly escaped annihilation by retreating along a beach road, and the 47th Brigade avoided the same by destroying their own heavy equipment, broke out into small parties, and ran for their lives cross-country to the beach, thus ceasing to be a fighting force. Lomax and Slim devised a stratagem for catching Koga's men in a box along the Mayu Peninsula. The box would involve six battalions, two on the ridges of the Mayu Hills, two along the Mayu River, and two on the hills due south of the Mangdao Bathedog Road. The idea was that the Japanese would be bound to utilize the tunnels on a disused railway track, dismantled for years at this point. They would be led into a box on their way to the tunnels, and the lid of the box would be shut by a force of a brigade in strength. It was in many ways an attempt to replicate Hannibal's famous victory at the Battle of Canae, every general's dream since ancient times. Lomax and Slim were going to use their tired and greatly demoralized men to carry out a scheme of geometrical perfection. But this is all for this week at the CBI Theater. Now, as we all know, during the Pacific War, General Douglas MacArthur and Admiral Ernest King both laid out their own plans for the drive towards Japan. This led to a compromise plan that held three phases. Phase one was to seize Guadalcanal. Phase two was to drive up the Central Solomons and New Guinea. And lastly, phase three was to neutralize Rabaul. Now, as much as MacArthur and King hated each other, they both understood Rabaul was a crucial linchpin for both of their plans. Working together did not always go so well, as you might imagine. Take, for example, Admiral Halsey, who continuously found himself stuck in the middle. At one point in early February, he was forced to go meet MacArthur to request reinforcements, because Operation KE had made the Allies think a major offensive was on the way. But MacArthur argued that his heavy bombers were too few and that he could not promise much support, as he believed an impending offensive was about to be launched against him in his own area. Now, Halsey was one of the few men, a Navy man no less, that MacArthur did not absolutely hate. So if he was going to get jerked around, well, that can tell you just about how difficult MacArthur was to work with. All of these difficulties emphasize the two services and the two area commands needed to better coordinate. And thus a conference was called to hammer out the fine details of how they could all play nice together. Now, meeting all in person was not feasible, so the commanders sent the representatives to Washington to present their plans. On March the 12th, the Pacific Military Conference was held with representatives from each Pacific Area Command. Lieutenant General George Kenney, Major General Richard Sutherland, and Brigadier General Stephen Chamberlain represented MacArthur's Southwest Command. Lieutenant General Millard Harmon, Major General Nathan Twinning, Captain Miles Browning, and Brigadier General DeWitt Peck represented Halsey's South Pacific Command. Lieutenant General Dallas Amounts, Rear Admiral Raymond Spruance, Brigadier General Leonard Boyd, and Captain Forrest Sherman represented Nimitz Central Pacific Command. Now just a small note here, since MacArthur could not make this conference, I still wanted to toss my good old two cents about the man. It's practically becoming a meme that every time I talk about MacArthur, I end up shit-talking him. You know, it's not my intention. It's not like I'm just here you know, just to shit on MacArthur. I don't know why this just keeps happening, but I have to tell you this rather, you know, infamous story. So while all of this was going on, Richard Sutherland, MacArthur's, you know, 
Little Butler, well, he had been sent on another mission to Washington by MacArthur personally. Richard Sutherland was sent to meet Arthur Vandenberg, a senior Republican senator. They met informally at the home of Claire Booth Luce, a strongly anti-Roosevelt Republican. She was also the wife of Henry Luce, the man in control of the Time Life media conglomerate. The purpose of the meeting was to discern how much Republican support MacArthur could expect if he ran for president in 1944. Vandenberg was on board for it, and a month later MacArthur would send another aide bearing a note to the senator stating this. I am most grateful to you for your complete attitude of friendship. I can only hope that I can someday reciprocate. Vandenberg and his allies drafted MacArthur for the Republican nomination as MacArthur met with his public relations staff, better called his court. One of his court members, Colonel Lloyd Lerbas, was disgusted by the open discussions of MacArthur winning the presidency and running the war from Washington. Lerbas was a former newspaper editor who was now reviewing press releases in MacArthur's name. MacArthur kept the man on his staff specifically because of his media connections. Vandenberg found strong support for MacArthur amongst the ARC conservative types. The Republican Party was going to be nominating two candidates, Wendell Wilkie and Thomas Dewey, but Vandenberg was trying to sneak MacArthur in as a third. However, there was a specific group of Republicans who adamantly opposed MacArthur's nomination. Veterans who had served under him during the Pacific War and before. Vandenberg tried to get a better picture by sending representatives to canvass the troops in the Pacific Theater for their thoughts. The consistent response was overly negative about MacArthur. In early 1944, a private conversation between MacArthur and a congressman named Arthur Miller of Nebraska was leaked to the public. It would reveal MacArthur's plot behind the scenes to run for presidency, and this forced MacArthur to backpedal heavily. On April the 30th of 1944, his staff released a statement from MacArthur stating this, I request that no action be taken that would link my name in any way with the nomination. I do not covet it, nor would I accept it. Yeah, MacArthur would try two more times to run for president. But anyways, now that you know that little tidbit information of my favorite figure, let's carry on. The Pacific Military Conference lasted until March the 28th. Conducted under the supervision of the Joint Staff Planners, headed by Rear Admiral Charles Cook and Major General Albert Wedemeyer. Now MacArthur's team came to the conference with a plan in hand, codenamed Elkton. Elkton was a town in Maryland, a famous destination for quick marriages, and thus the operation was to be a two-pronged offensive. It called for the seizure of New Britain, New Ireland, and the New Guinea area, which would be based on Phase 2 and 3 of the July 2 Directive. There was to be two approaches heading for Rabaul, one proceeding along the northern coast of New Guinea, and the other through the Solomons. This ambitious plan called for first seizing airfields on the Huan Peninsula and New Georgia, then air bases on New Britain and Bougainville, then the seizure of Kaving, and finally Rabaul would be isolated enough to be invaded. The first week of the conference became a real arm wrestling match between Sutherland and the other joint chiefs, especially General Marshall who squabbled over the details of Elkton. Admiral King and the Navy were quite hostile to the plan, but rather shockingly, to some, that is, 
William Bull Halsey was a large supporter of MacArthur's plan. Honestly, uh, for someone in the United States Navy to support any of MacArthur's plans was basically sacrilegious. It was like doing a deal with the devil. Halsey's team argued the plan did not overstretch the resources, and in fact, Halsey was finding working with MacArthur was enormously benefiting the Pacific War effort. Halsey and MacArthur were a lethal combo, but King was hard-pressed because the truth was they simply did not have the necessary resources for MacArthur's grand plan. So as you can imagine, compromises were made. MacArthur's initial calculations for his plan to work required 12 and two-third divisions and 30 air groups for the Southwest Pacific area, while 10 divisions and 15 air groups were needed in Halsey's South Pacific area. The Joint Chiefs responded by asking what the Pacific representatives thought that they could accomplish in 1943 with the very best reinforcements Washington could actually deliver. Sutherland and Halsey's team agreed Task 2 could be accomplished. That being the taking of northeastern New Guinea, Madang Salamao Juan Gulf Triangle, Bungainville, New Georgia, Cape Gloucester, and New Britain could all be taken but they would probably run out of resources to actually take Rabaul. The Joint Chiefs said to forget about Rabaul for the time being and to focus on taking the Bismarck Archipelago. MacArthur began writing from Brisbane he thought this idea was a huge mistake. We are already committed to the campaign in New Guinea. If at the same time we enter upon a conversion attack on the New Georgia group, we have committed our entire strength without assurance or accomplishment of either objective. And so MacArthur spoke with Halsey, and Halsey agreed to wait for his attack on New Georgia until MacArthur had achieved his objective by taking the islands of Kirawina, Woodlark, and the Trobriand Islands. When proposed back to the Joint Chiefs, to everyone's amazement, Admiral King accepted the revised Elkton plan, with little complaint. The final directive went out on March 28th, officially cancelling the three-stage drive to Rabaul. Instead, the objectives for 1943 would be first Woodlark and Kirwina, then the Madang Salamao Finchafin Triangle and New Britain, and finally the Solomons plus Southern Bougainville. For the first time in the Pacific War, there was an agreed two strategy for winning in the Southwest Pacific. In the mind of MacArthur, who you can imagine was only thinking about one thing, the Philippines, he had achieved his plan to direct the war where he wanted it to go. And he had a surprising naval ally in Bull Halsey. The Elkton plan would eventually be called Operation Cartwheel. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just now finishing up my multi-part series on China's Warlord Era. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And this month's exclusive podcast is about General Kanji Ishiwara, 
the mastermind behind the Mukden incident. Please check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Operation Cartwheel was greenlit, and it showcased MacArthur could, under extremely rare circumstances, make peace with his true enemy during the Pacific War, the United States Navy. Yes, MacArthur would be able to direct the war, at least for a bit, to where he wanted it, in the direction of the Philippines.